Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. And we recently realized it's hard to assess a politician who has virtually no political record. But with Donald Trump, we tried anyway. And we wound up with stories and lessons from the record he does have in business and on TV. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, Washington correspondent for New York Magazine, Olivia Nuzzi, and Atlantic Magazine staff writer, McKay Coppins. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, this is NPR. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Each week we start the show with a different song. I'm going to challenge you guys to figure out what this song is. Do you know what this is? No. (laughs) As Aunt Buddy said, we've got two superstars here today. A couple of magazine, fancy highfalutin magazine writers here. Olivia, McKay, thank you guys. I know you both had rough nights before this. (laughs) You were working late. An evergreen statement. We got two Red Bulls on deck. Talk more about what you guys cover, briefly. Um, I cover the White House and sort of the personalities who are yeah. populating the White House. And you have and these great profiles of some of the key players thank in the you. White House. And, so. like, the people influencing it from the outside. Talk now let's say nice things about Sam. Well, first say more about what, <laughs> more about what you, you cover. Thank you for bringing me this Red Bull. <laughs> I will always bring you Red Bull. It's the anytime. nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. Um, I cover uh, national politics, uh, obviously the Trump presidency, but especially kind of the Republican Party. And, and the conservative con- movement. conservative movement. Yeah, it's a beat that just keeps on giving. All right, this song, you haven't guessed it yet. Play some more, Brent. Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb. You know this song. Selena. Oh my god, uh, I thought it's Selena. Selena or Gloria You should have said it. <laughs> you should have said Selena. Uh, anyway, I picked this song. Uh, it's by Selena. It's called Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb. This week marks uh, the anniversary of the release of her first album, which came out in 1989. It's hard to overstate how big of a star she was in the Southwest, in Texas, where I'm from, in Mexico. She was a big deal. And when she died, it was also a big deal. Like, she was on some. Elvis level stuff and I was a big fan of hers growing up this song I love it's one of her biggest hits although I still don't know what bitty bitty bomb bomb means I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I need to study the lyrics a little <laughs> get, get the context yeah, and then I'll, yeah, I'll formulate yeah. an opinion yeah also to all those out there watch the classic movie Selena starring J-Lo mm, as yeah. Selena it's real good all right all right all right we are here to discuss what happened this week, the aftermath, continuing aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein story, President Trump's growing feud with the GOP, and so, 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 so much more. But first, let's begin the week as we always do. I ask my guests to describe their week of news and everything else in just three words. Okay, what do you got? Um, okay, so what I came up with was, um, wait, what now? Explain. Would be, and, the, and the reason is, so... Um, I think it pertains to a lot of things, specically the healthcare news that we've seen over the past week. And um, catch folks up. The yeah, so we there there are basically fifteen twists and turns. I actually was trying to brush up last <laughs> night, and I realized how impossible it is for like a casual news consumer yeah, to follow it. Yeah. But so President Trump uh, came out and said that they were not going to fund subsidies that stabilize the insurance markets. Basically, basically payments to insurance companies exactly. to help keep premiums low for low-income people. Exactly. And this threatened to kind of wreak havoc on, on Obamacare. On, Ob- on Obamacare. And so 
Uh, and then we saw reporting that said that he had been privately behind the scenes encouraging uh, lawmakers to come up with some kind of bipartisan legislative fix. To save these subsidies. To save the subsidies. Because right. lots of states and governors are saying, we need this. Uh, five states have already exactly. filed suit against the White House for even saying that it would take yep. the money away. But now it seems that bipartisan bill is doomed already. Well, that's what's so, so crazy. So they, so we had two senators come out and say, we, we've been working on this deal. Democratic Patty Murray, and Republican. Lamar Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so they announced this deal. And almost immediately, Trump starts backing away from it. Mm-hmm. it, it it's, it's bizarre. And, and I found myself trying to follow this this past week. And I felt like every time I turned on my phone or like yeah. <laughs> turned on TV or, or listened to the radio, it would be like, wait, what? What, what now? What, what, wait, now? what now? What just happened? <laughs> uh, and I mean, this kind of fits a larger pattern, you know, with the Iran deal, mm-hmm. with DACA. Um, you see Trump not just passing the book to Congress, but also giving mixed messages about what he wants. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's interesting because there could be a there's a case to be made that it's better for Congress to address these things, for these things to be fixed legislatively. Because, because you then, had two parties buying into right, it. You have two parties buying into it. It makes it more difficult for whoever new comes into the White House to take, to, it, away. To take it away, to upend things. The problem is you need some kind of support from the White House to, to get it done. If Trump doesn't back it, Republicans on the Hill aren't going to back it. And it seems now he is backing, Olivia, this um, budget resolution that might lay the groundwork for tax cuts. For now. I mean, yeah. he, might, he might change it tomorrow. I'm not even being facetious. I yeah. mean, we've seen this over and over again. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, what now? And my three words were, uh, it's getting worse, I think. What's getting worse? I think it really... He is not any more focused or any more coherent on policy today than he was when he first entered the op- the office in January. He's continuing the, these fights, you know, with the NFL. Well, um, this week with, like, the with, family exactly. of a fallen soldier. And a quick background on that. So um, this week there's been a lot of coverage of a call made from the White House to the family of Sergeant LaDavid T. Johnson. Johnson was one of four U.S. soldiers killed in an ambush attack in Niger, uh, gosh, about two weeks ago now. Uh, Representative Frederica Wilson, a Democrat from Johnson's home district, said she was on the call as well. She heard it on speakerphone and said that Trump was disrespectful. She said that Trump said that Johnson knew what he was signing up for, wouldn't even reference Johnson by name, which made her think that he didn't know this person's name. And the day after those comments, the mother of Johnson said, yes, what Wilson says is true. And she said, quote, that Trump disrespected her family. This has led to, as you referenced, Olivia, um, John Kelly, uh, chief of staff to Trump, coming out and speaking forcefully about all of this yesterday. What did he say? Right. And, you know, John Kelly, for first of all, nobody is disputing what the was... facts about this yes. call. Except Donald Trump. Uh, Trump said Donald that Trump. Wilson was lying. Right. You know, it's like they're turning this debate, this very real debate about what happened and about the president's response to it into this kind of character assassination of yes. this congresswoman. And it's something we've sort of seen time and time again since January. Um, anytime that the president does anything wrong or controversial, um, he turns it into a personal fight. But we're not talking now about what initially started this conversation. Exactly. You know, he, I, I hate to, I hate when people say like, you know, the president is deflecting and, and he's inventing a new Everything crisis. Everything is a distraction. Exactly, because right? I don't think that he is that, um, I don't think he has that much foresight. Yeah. This is the other thing though about Trump is that he, 
always takes these things super personally. Right. And it takes them as attacks. Remember, this is not even his first, uh, you know, kind of outlandish feud in the with the Gold Star with the family. Gold Star family category. <laughs> Khan yeah, so during the campaign. In in that situation, everyone, if you would interview people on the Trump campaign, his advisors, would all they were pulling their hair out, just begging Trump to just let Stop. this thing drop. But he couldn't do it because he just he, when he feels like he's being attacked, he has to lash but out. But it's not I don't think that he actually gets angry about this sort of thing. I think he lives for conflict like this. Hmm. I think he thrives on conflict. And this, frankly, is probably more interesting to him and stimulates him more than a conversation about healthcare policy or about the budget. Yeah. Um, this is the type of thing that he that's familiar to him and that he feels comfortable doing. And I think that's why he does it so often. Yeah. And I mean, the thing in all of this that we are not talking about as a country right now is whatever exactly happened in Niger. Right. right. You know, there is this ambush attack that killed four U.S. troops that we still have a lot of questions about, you know, like a lot of questions. All right, you guys, I have three words. All of us. And this kind of sums up my thoughts about the ongoing fallout of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. We all know what it is now. And this week we saw the hashtag MeToo trend uh, with women sharing their personal stories of abuse and harassment or just even saying, hey, something happened to me. Um, It was very powerful. Yeah. I mean, I hate to be the like – clueless man who you know is so shocked and surprised by this but, please, but now let me now let me tell you why i was i mean honestly i remember when it started to take off this hashtag um i got on, i'm one morning i got on facebook and literally every woman in my facebook newsfeed was was sharing these stories and these are you know family members friends people i went to high school with college with um you know it, like i think intellectually i knew that this kind of stuff happened and i knew it was bad um, but to see just how uh, many stories there were out there was, I think, really jarring for a lot of men watching this take place. And I th- and, and hopefully um, is, is prompting some soul searching and some hard conversations. Yeah. I don't want to step over the woman in this conversation. What was your take on this week of Me Too? Well, I mean, I think I was a little bit concerned by Me Too only in that I, I thought, you know, perhaps women who didn't want to publicize their stories might feel uh, left out or might feel yeah. pressured to do so, might not feel the sense of community, might feel like they were missing out on sort of a camaraderie um, and, and being, you know, comforted yeah. by sharing this with people that they know and yeah. that they trust. Um, but, you know, I think the more that we talk about abuse of power um, in any realm, the better. And the more chance that there is that it'll change. Yeah. I'm always interested in who we expect to lead conversations after traumatic events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things I found annoying about the aftermath of Charlottesville is that people of color were almost forced to lead this conversation about race. And I'm like, you shouldn't have to do that right now. You just went through a lot. And when I see the Me Too hashtag trend, I admire and commend the women leading this conversation. But I think, gosh, it must be really hard to not just have to think about this all over again, but feel like you have this pressure to lead a national dialogue about it. Right. I saw a woman, um, I I don't know her name was just on Twitter. Somebody retweeted her into my timeline, but she said uh, that she 
she was joking. She was being lighthearted about it, but she was saying that she was like suffering. Her mm. health was suffering because every time she went on the internet or looked at the TV anywhere, uh. she was just inundated with stories of sexual abuse. I mean, everywhere you turn since this there. New York Times story has come out, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Everyone seems to have a story. I talked with uh, some men and women that I know to kind of get into how men are responding to it. And the vibe that I got was that a lot of men didn't know how to respond via social media platforms. What do you say? How do you say the right or wrong thing? And at first I was like, yeah, I hear you. That must be hard. But then I was like, hmm. So you're... <laughs> and then I was like, okay, so you don't know what to say. You're nervous about getting it wrong. Welcome to how women feel every day. You know, but I, the one point I would make, though, is like we have we have had these conversations before. I remember a during few years ago. Well, that? during the campaign, but before that even, there was a hashtag uh, not all men thing that happened after oh. a, a shooting in California that I, I can't even remember where it was because yeah. there have been so many shootings. Was it shootings. the Santa Barbara one? Yes. Okay. Thank you. And so I do always wonder, you know, when, when this sort of tapers off um, and we move on to something else, you know, will anything have really fundamentally changed? I don't and, know. Yeah. I, I read this piece uh, by a woman at, uh, at Deadspin and she was making the point that more important than men responding on social media to this is men responding amongst each other privately. This is right? the thing. Yeah. Like having having difficult conversations. And she was saying one of the big problems is that men are reacting to this defensively uh, yeah. as, as if they're on trial or they're reacting to it by kind of treating it as a binary where, oh, those are the bad guys, but I'm a good guy. Whereas the reality We're is... We're all guys in this system. Yeah, right. Well, the, that, that's the reality. And, and just mathematically speaking, there are so many of these stories. It's not just a few bad apples in, in terms of the and, men who are... Co- yeah. And so we need to be having as men uncomfortable conversations with each other and with ourselves and kind of figuring out how... Uh, you know, that, that that's where the conversation needs to be happening. In addition to social media and everything else, it, it's not just about what to tweet or what to put on your Facebook. Yeah. And I think a lot of men who think, well, I'm not one of the bad guys, if they thought hard enough or could flash back to those nights when they were blackout drunk, mm-hmm. they might have been. Yeah, I mean, I'm reluctant to kind of go assume that every man has committed some sort of act against a woman like this or has made a woman feel victimized because I, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting because this the last year, maybe year and a half, I feel like everyone has learned at some point that we have to try to do better to yeah. each other, whether you're a man or you are a white person or you are heterosexual. I, I feel like people um, who are in a position to potentially make others feel lesser or victimized. Yeah. Everyone has learned at some point through the news cycle in the last year, year and a half, um, that they need to, on a person-to-person level, be better. Yeah. All right, guys. Time for a quick break. We will BRB, I promise. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lyft. Reminding listeners that they could be relaxing in a Lyft ride right now, with their eyes closed, listening to Beethoven or whale sounds, or a babbling brook or something else relaxing. Lyft provides rides as relaxing as the buttery smooth voice of a public radio announcer because riding is just a more relaxing way to drive. Lyft, it matters how you get there. Download and ride today. Support also comes from Google Cloud Platform. Use machine learning at scale to build better products. 
Google Cloud's AI provides modern machine learning services that enables you to easily build models and work on any type of data of any size. Their platform is now available as a cloud service to bring unmatched scale and speed to your business applications. It predicts so your business can thrive. To learn more, visit cloud.google.com. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's a show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with Olivia Nuzzi from New York Magazine, McKay Coppins from The Atlantic. Guys, quickly in 15 seconds, what's your biggest pet peeve? Go. <laughs> Being put on the spot. Hey, <laughs> you win. And you, sir? Sugar Red Bull. Uh, only sugar free is it for me. <laughs> Anytime someone hands me a Red Bull with sugar, I'm like, come on. My Such biggest a diva. I know, right? <laughs> My biggest pet peeve is when people say couple when they mean a few. Couple means two, only two. Mm. Oh, I do that. Three or more, say few. I totally do that. No, I, I actually share that pit. That, that <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. All right. I wait. Sorry, one more pet peeve. <laughs> <laughs> people, I keep people keep using the wrong version of lead. I notice smart people all the time. Lead. They do it like L E A G mm. instead of L E D. It drives me insane. It's driving me insane. America, but listen. I don't, I don't want to subtweet anybody because I don't want to be make them feel oh, bad. Oh, subtweet like whoa. Do it. Do it. <laughs> All right, now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance. We call a listener somewhere in the world and talk to them about the news in their neck of the woods. Today on the line, from Gainesville, Florida, we have Bailey Underhill. Bailey, you there? Yeah, hey. How are you? I'm great. Good, good. You're on the phone with me and two friends of mine, Olivia and McKay. They are Hi. both magazine writers. <laughs> hey. Hi, guys. So we're calling you this week because you're a junior at the University of Florida. That school was in the news this week for one speaker that showed up there, right? Yes. So, yeah, so we're talking about Richard Spencer, a white nationalist. Um, he spoke on campus Thursday. Governor Rick Scott had declared a state of emergency in the county beforehand. Uh, there were protests, of course, at Spencer's speech, concerns it could have been violent. What was it like this week on campus, Bailey? Um, so it was kind of confusing pretty much up until the event happened because the students didn't really know who was coming into our campus. Professors really didn't know whether or not campus was going to be safe to go to class. So it was just a lot of anxiety and uncertainty, I think. And you skipped some classes because you were nervous about safety? Yeah, so I skipped just one. It was in the afternoon, um, right around the time that the speech was supposed to be ending. And I didn't really know what kind of movement would be happening after the event. So I figured it would just be better to not go. And you're a person of color. Did you feel unsafe for that reason? Yes. That's the reason I didn't go protest, just because I'm a woman of color. If there was going to be any violence, I just really did not feel like I would be safe. Yeah. I was thinking this morning about, you know, not going to class because of safety concerns. And it was kind of like, and maybe it's too big of a question, but like, do they win if that happens, right? Like, do they win if they keep someone like you from living your life to the fullest extent? So, yeah, we talked a lot about this. Our professors talked about this a lot, too. And I think it's just the fact that we have the choice to go to class or to stay home. I think that's really the win and that some people chose to go to class, that some people were able to choose to go protest. That really shows that we all have the ability to respond in a certain way. And it was just very clear from everyone's actions that, you know, UF is not the place for this kind of this kind of message. Yeah. You know, so UF is a public university. 
they really can't block mm-hmm. free expe- um, speech. So they had to allow Spencer on campus. They spent some $600,000 on security alone for the event. Uh How do you feel about the state of free speech in light of what happened this week on your campus? Do you want more limitations or less? I think what went down was actually the right course of action. Really? So, yeah, free speech is something that public universities hold very highly and very dear. And I believe that, you know, if he wants to come share his opinions on our campus, then he can feel free to. But as long as our students are safe and our community is together on it, then free speech is something that we shouldn't be uh, putting any more limitations on. But if someone else's free speech is making you feel unsafe at your school where you are getting your degree, is that fair? Like, is that really, are we freer because a neo-Nazi was able to speak at your campus? Right. Yeah. um, I've kind of, been fighting with this internally. But what I felt was just like a really special moment. I was watching a Facebook live feed of the like inside the speech uh, area. And Richard Spencer was up there speaking, just screaming at students. And he was able to just stand on the stage by himself without anyone attacking him or like showing him any violence, just screaming like, no Nazis on campus, Black Lives Matter. It was, I thought it was amazing. And I thought that's really what I don't know. It kind of made me feel like that's what America stands for. Is just this person who's clearly on the wrong side of history is able to share their views. And we have the ability to band together. You know, if this guy thinks a white ethno state is where we're headed, then he can come tell us about it. But yeah, it's it's hard. I was going to ask you, Bailey, because I, I feel like one of the arguments that always gets made in defense of free speech of this kind is that, uh-huh. um, you know, the the marketplace of ideas is important and that, that you know, ultimately we're all better off when all kinds of ideas, some of them radical, some of them toxic and poisonous are expressed. So I'm curious, you saw the, the mini version of this play out on your campus. Did you feel coming away from that uh, it galvanized people in opposition to this? Did you, or, or, or were you worried? Was there any sense that maybe he, he planted some seeds or maybe won some people over? Was anyone sympathetic to it? Um, I do not believe anyone was. And I think that if anyone was on this campus sympathetic to this idea, that they were too afraid to come out and say so, um, which is, I think, good. <laughs> but UF was incredibly united. And I felt... I actually felt much safer overall, just knowing how many people um, on this campus believe in diversity and believe that all people should have equal rights. Like it made me feel really happy that morning to wake up and Hmm. see all these signs together, UF and we're united. And I don't know, it was, it was really special to see everyone in your community come out at once to say that we support equal rights. Yeah. So what are you going to do this weekend to de-stress? Sounds like a stressful week. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I'm actually going to go home and see my parents for the first time in a long time. Where's home? Um, Cocoa Beach, Florida. Okay. Nice. So, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to go down there, see my dog, see my parents. What kind of dog? Very excited. He's a little, old little mutt. We don't really know what he is, but he's old and he's fat and we love him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, Yeah, thank you, guys. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
What I find really interesting about these kind of things is we hear the story of what happened on campus there, but my bigger questions are what does the visual uh, of Spencer's speech do for the watchers on the fence about being white nationalists mm-hmm. throughout the country? I watched a bit of the live feed of it, and if you watched it on mute, it was like Spencer looked like the rational one. And the students were the ones yelling and yelling and angry and angry. And, like, that's what he wants, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to look like he is under attack from this liberal elite and that he deserves to be defended. And in some ways, just getting to do that gives him that win. I, you know, I I believe in free speech, obviously, right? I'm a journalist. um, And I think he has a right to speak. He has a right to share his ideas. I've covered him before. I've conversed with him. I've heard a lot from him. But I, there's something about doing this at college campuses. It seems unfair to me. Like when I hear that she was afraid to go to class, like she felt like she didn't know who among the crowd at her school felt that way. Yeah. You know, it's a college campus. I, if you're a student and you, if you're Richard Spencer was like young and a student and he wanted to speak on campus, I think it'd be one thing. But he's, you know, bulldozing in here. Well, the The story that she told, which was, I think in a way inspiring was that after all of this, she was actually heartened by how unified her campus was uh, in opposition to this guy and his, and his horrible ideas. I don't know if that alone is enough to justify the cost, not financially, but you know, psychically to this campus and the people of color, especially. It was just luck that it didn't Didn't go go crazy. Listeners, we want to talk to you for this segment. If you want us to give you a call and hear about anything going on where you live, drop us a note. Tell me what's going on. Sam Sanders, all one word, at NPR.org. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, here with Olivia Nutzi from New York Magazine and McKay Coppins from The Atlantic. They both cover politics. Really quick, Justin Bieber, yay or nay? No. Nay. Oh, Yay! Come on. He's made some hits. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. Leaving Bieber behind for now as a believer. Believer? How do they say that? Believer. Are you a believer? I'm seriously a believer, and I stand by it. He's got the hits. He's got the hits. Anyway. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now it's time to talk about our main story of the week, which seems to be... Uh, and maybe I'm speaking too hyperbolically about it, but a brewing civil war within the GOP, right? I mean, like, we have Republicans in control of the House and the Senate and the White House uh, and a large portion of the state and local governments across the country. But on issue after issue, they can't get big things done, like health care, like funding for the wall, because of discord within their own party. Um, you're seeing these war of words between Trump and Senator McConnell, between Trump and Senator Corker, between Trump and Jeff Flake and Ben Sass, And at a time, it seems like huh. Republicans should have their ducks in a row. Yeah. They're all over the pond. I sense a trend there. <laughs> okay. Well, like, okay, but I'm going to call push... it a civil war. Well, yes. Okay. But okay. But I've also been calling it a civil war for like five years. <laughs> and, and and I'll push back a little against the idea that uh, this is brought on by Trump. I, I, mm. Like I said, I've been covering this for years. I wrote a whole book about the civil war in the Republican Party. By the wilderness. Out in, by the wilderness. <laughs> the wilderness. And I think that book, would, which came out kind of right at the beginning of the Republican primaries, showed that 
the party was was ready for kind of a a, a civil war. Like it Who was were coming. The players in the civil war. Yeah, this well, is to both of you guys. Well, well, so look, I mean, prior to Trump, we had the Tea Party insurrection, yeah. which uh, kind of pitted this grassroots right wing small government anti tax movement against the Republican establishment. But the reality is, you can go back the past fifty years in the Republican Party, and there has always been a split between, uh, you know, broadly speaking, the political establishment mm-hmm. who are generally interested in governing in some way in Washington, and the kind of grassroots base. There have been times where the grassroots base has been defined by its social conservatism. Uh, there is there have been times. Where when it's been defined by its uh, small government Tea Partyism, now uh, we're seeing people like Steve Bannon try to take the reins and define it by nationalism, and some would say white nationalism. And so, Olivia, I want to talk to you about Steve Bannon. Like, how much of this, how much of the war that we're seeing now is a direct result of Steve Bannon, who has declared, quote, a season of war against establishment Republicans. He's running primary challengers against Senate Republicans next year. Well, I think a lot of the drama is the result of Steve Bannon. Okay. I mean, this is a man who knows how to sell uh, whatever it is that he's doing, yeah. right? He's very good at creating uh, a narrative, uh, creating a lot of mystery surrounding his plans. Um, he is expert at that. Thursday night um, at what they call the Breitbart Embassy, which is the his house. His house. Literally, <laughs> he lives. But it's also where Breitbart uh, News is headquartered. Oh. So he threw a party for Laura Ingram's book about populism. Okay. Um, I'm writing a story right now uh, that relates to the embassy. And mm-hmm. so I went. And it was this bizarre scene. But to hear him talk about their success and to hear Laura Ingram talk about it, to hear Stephen Miller talk about it. They all spoke separately. I mean, they really are feeling triumphant. And I think it's about how relevant they are right now. You know, but like on that thread, you quoted someone really interesting recently, McKay, and I forget who it was. But they said, you know, speaking to this populist movement that is ascendant right now, Trump seems uniquely able to give voice to voters' anger, but incapable of channeling it towards a larger purpose. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, this is, I think, gets to the core of the dysfunction in the Republican Party. So it's true that Trump is just fundamentally not good at this. He's not good at at, at at policymaking, at legislating, at wrangling lawmakers on the Hill and and building consensus. But set that aside, you still have a, a fundamental problem in the Republican Party, which is that the unified Republican control of the federal government right now is essentially an illusion. The, an it, illusion. Yeah. That's I mean, a bold claim. So it's, tr- it's true that the GOP controls the House and the Senate and the White House, but survey any 10 Republicans in those three uh, places. You'll find 12 different viewpoints. You'll find 12 different I mean, viewpoints. it's not really a two-party system. If it's, you actually look at the right. Republican uh, Party, it's like four different this, parties minimum. This is a coalition government, huh. basically, mm-hmm. okay. like they have in okay. Britain. I never thought about it that way, but it kind of makes sense. I mean, look at what they're saying about Mitch McConnell. I can't think of somebody who has was. I mean, he was an obstructionist. He probably, arguably, I think, helped President Trump more than any other Republican in Washington during during the election. And now he is the en- public enemy number one for the populace. Well, public enemy. Until Trump takes him out to the Rose Garden and says, hey, actually, we're friends. I don't think that makes a difference to people like Steve Bannon. I don't okay. know what you no. think, McCann. Yeah, yeah. Is there any That's theater. Yeah, yeah. Is there any historical precedent for these kind of rifts in a party that controls all the chambers? Yeah, in a party that controls all the chambers, that that's a, that's an interesting. Caveat. I mean, like, I mean, like, like, the, the, like the fact that there might be a government shutdown and one party's in charge of everything. 
That seems it's pretty unprecedented. Un- it's, it's pretty no? unprecedented. I mean, things were bad, like, you know, a long time ago when people were just literally killing each other in our government, right? Wait, 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 like, wait, like, <laughs> like Alexander Hamilton, yeah. Alan Burr, Aaron Burr? But, like, you know, I think if, if you're looking at modern American history, I don't think we've ever seen something like this. The, the last time we saw this kind of upheaval in the Republican Party was in the late 60s with the rise of Barry Goldwater. Huh. And, and that was when the conservative movement took over the Republican Party and went on to define the party's ideas ideology for the next 50 years. We now think of Republicans as synonymous with conservatism. That wasn't always the case. Uh, So the question is, are Bannon-style, Trump-style nationalists doing the same thing now? But Steve Bannon is not a candidate. Steve Bannon is not running for president. And so I don't know if we've ever seen something exactly like this. I want to make one more point about this, which is that... um, you know, go back to the Goldwater era, the the rise of the conservative movement. Before Goldwater, you did have kind of a whole uh, world of uh, thinkers, intellectuals, policy gurus who were articulating and popularizing conservative ideas before Goldwater ever came along and won the Republican nomination and before Ronald Reagan became the first real movement conservative to win the White House. So what was happening now is that formula kind of got inverted, right? Donald Trump won, and then a bunch of people came to him and said, ooh, we need to figure out what to do with this. And so we have people like Bannon, uh, people like Seb Gorka, uh, who who are saying this is basically an empty vessel that we can now fill, uh, we can fill with our ideas. My last question to wrap this segment up is, in the short term, what, if anything, can we expect from these Republican-controlled chambers in the White House? Like, are they going to get tax reform done? They passed this resolution. No. It's I don't think so. No, yeah. uh, it seems unlikely. I mean, look, the, the, it just goes to this. There, It is so dysfunctional. There are so many different moving parts and nobody at, at the helm. What's amazing is that at this moment of Republican dominance, there actually is still a leadership vacuum. There's no one who's really leading the entire Republican and Party. And the president, you would think, would be trying to do that in some capacity, but he just can't figure out how to move policy or how to even yeah. create policy. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. When we come back, who said that? My favorite game. And the best things that happened to our listeners all week. <laughs> Support for this podcast and the following message come from WordPress.com. Creating your website on WordPress.com helps your customers find you, remember you, and connect with you. At WordPress.com, you'll find hundreds of beautiful designs, the ability to add a custom domain name, and features that make your business more visible online. WordPress offers 24-7 customer service if you need help. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash minute. I'm Scott Detrow. There's so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. With a team of NPR political reporters and editors, we record two episodes a week and sometimes more when the big news happens. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back and it's time for my favorite game. It's called Who Said That? You guys know how this goes, right? No. Yeah. Basically, I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that. We'll do three or four of these, and the winner gets, drum roll, absolutely nothing. Perfect. So high stakes. Yes, yes. You ready for the first quote? Yes. Yeah. Amazon, you've got so much going for you, and you'll find what you're looking for, but it's just not us who said that. 
the mayor of Little Rock? Close. Or the, the, cha- the Chamber of Commerce. Of Little yeah. Rock. Olivia's like, what? What? <laughs> Tell the story, McKay. Uh, yeah, so obviously Amazon oh. is, is looking for a, a new place to open their second headquarters HQ in North two. America. Yeah. Um, and all these different cities are bidding and coming up with incentives. And uh, Little Rock ran an ad, a full-page ad in the Washington Post, is yeah. that right? Which is owned by Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Basically saying... We don't want you. No, thanks. We're not interested. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is kind of a, a, like a, a pretty... Uh, it a was pretty, bold. Yeah, it was a good move. And now we're all talking about Little Rock. It worked. This yeah. Well, yeah, they, what they did was they used it to like work in all the talking points about how great Little Rock is exactly. and how they don't need Amazon. Exactly. You say it's rigged, Olivia? It's rigged. I have What? Heard about Little Rock or us? This game. <laughs> so what's funny is over 100 cities have submitted bids. The thinking is that Amazon will bring at least 50,000 jobs. Uh, New York City lit up their landmarks in Amazon Orange. Uh, Tucson sent a 21-foot cactus to Amazon headquarters. (laughs) Stonecrest, Georgia offered to name the land for the headquarters Amazon. So dystopian. Then there's this whole Alexa. It's like an Ayn Rand. I don't like it. I don't like it. There's also this, like, Alexa bit all these mayors have been doing. So, Alexa, where is the best place for Amazon to locate its second world headquarters? Danbury, Connecticut. Where should Amazon locate HQ2? Hmm, in Frisco, Texas. Where is the most interesting company in the world going to locate? Obviously, Washington, D.C. I hate Alexa. Why do you hate Alexa? I I don't know. She She probably hates you, too. She definitely hates me. Yeah, no. Oh, God, I I hate Alexa. All right, the next quotes that I'm giving you are song lyrics of a song released this week. I want you to guess whose song it is. First quote, I see you there now. Smoking from your unseen fire. Taylor Swift. No. <laughs> Walk in the place, then the darkness erase. This is my room. This is my tune. You're a witch on my broom. I'll give you a line from a review of the song. <laughs> Come back, old Will Smith. Come back soon. Oh. America needs you, if only because the rock doesn't rap. It's a Will Smith song. I see you there You haven't heard this yet? No way. Listen, listen. <laughs> That's a new Will Smith song. What happened if parents just don't understand? That's what I want to know. So, Wait, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of here oh, for it. Get out of my house. Get out of my house. <laughs> You're fired. Not, not this fired. song in particular, but a Will Smith renaissance. I'm okay. okay with that. So Will Smith and DJ, DJ Jazzy Jeff got back together. They, Jazzy Jeff is usually known for really soulful collaborations, steeped in like R&B tradition. This ain't it. No, this is an EDM song. I'm much more interested in like a Willow Smith song. Yeah. One of the lyrics that he has in here is, we ain't part of them negatrons. We transform and get lit. Is this like a Scientology thing? (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to say yay or nay. They can come for me. I don't care. I don't care. They don't scare me. All right. Next quote. Last quote. (laughs) This one's my favorite. Ready? Quote, I tried Costco chicken. I tried Restaurant Depot chicken, and then I went to dinner at Popeye's and knew this was the chicken we had to use for the store. It's the best chicken. Olivia, you got it. I know who said it, but I don't know their name. That's fine. It's this restaurant that was, like, reselling Popeye's chicken, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> Wait, what? Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. So okay, I feel better now. Kim Sanchez <laughs> in Long Beach owns a restaurant called Sweet Dixie Kitchen. Uh, this week, she was outed on Yelp for serving Popeye's chicken tenders as her own during brunch. Someone on Yelp said that they saw staff of Sweet Dixie Kitchen carrying Popeye's boxes in through the back door. Oh, my gosh. 
Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. And she stood by it. She 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 has talked to press on Yelp and was like, "We proudly serve Popeye spicy tenders, the best fried res- chicken anywhere." I respect that so much. She like, also said, "Popeyes isn't bad, actually." Oh, I, I, I commend her taste. Yeah, but she just stood by it. She was like, "Also, in case you need to know, we buy our gumbo from a friend. We also don't <laughs> mill our own flour. We also don't grow our own veggies." Like. Kim Sanchez is like, and what? Come at me, bro. I love her. I think it's great. <laughs> All right. I didn't keep score. Who won? It doesn't matter, but. I think I think Kim Sanchez won. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Kim Sanchez. Popeye's won. And by won. extension, we all won. There you go. <laughs> America won. I love it. All right. You guys did great. We're almost out of here. But first, a plug for our Tuesday episode. I sat down recently with Ashley Nicole Black. She's a writer and a correspondent on Full Frontal with Samantha B. And she was just delightful, you guys. Did she, she have any good lot. stories? She had some really good stories about like trying to make it in comedy and improv. Did she have anything to say about how you satirize something like our political climate right now? Because I'm so fascinated by that. She did. Listen up. Download on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, we're going to end the weekly wrap as we always do. Each week, we ask our listeners to send us a recording of their own voices sharing the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage them to brag. Take a listen. Hi, Sam. This is Megan from North Carolina. Um, the best thing that happened to me this week was that I found out my 92-year-old grandpa has a new lady friend in his life. Oh, hey. My grandma died a year and a half ago, and oh. they had been married for 65 years. So the last 18 months have been pretty tough on grandpa. Oh. Um, so so it's a bright spot in his life now, so that's a, a bright spot in my life. So cute. That's beautiful. Hey, Sam. This is Joe from Japan. Hey, Joe. The best thing that happened to me this week, the birth of my first grandchild. Congrats! The best thing that happened to me all week is that I studied my butt off for over a week and got an A on my biochemistry test. My mom is finished with chemo and radiation. That's good news. And um, she came through it well and we're very hopeful. I got a call from a lovely lady who said she had my cat who had run away from home. He had been missing for almost four months. Whoa. I still cannot believe I have him back home. That's awesome. Hey, Sam. This is Brian calling from St. Louis. Today, I am marrying the love of my life, Jessica Barnes. And I couldn't be more excited. Congrats. Hey, Sam. This is Chris. Uh, and the best thing that happened to me this week was that after 13 years of living and slugging through life in L.A., uh, I had some friends over and we watched my network TV debut. Whoa, wow. Because as LL Cool J says... Dreams don't have deadlines. (laughs) Hey, Sam. My name is Meg, and I'm from San Francisco, California. But my hometown is Santa Rosa. Um, The best thing that happened for me this week was that we got the certain news that my mom and stepdad's home is still standing after those fires. Wow. Um, They were in one of the worst ravaged areas, and we thought that the chances of it being there were just nothing. Mm -hmm. Man. So that was such a nice surprise, and we are so grateful that they have somewhere to return to when eventually this this all wraps up. Happy for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Ooh, who's chopping onions? That is like the nicest thing ever. It's, this is yeah. my favorite. Thing yeah, I really show. like it. 
Um, all those voices you heard from, thank you. Thanks to Megan, Joseph, Leah, Patty, Nisha, Brian, Chris, who is on TV, what show? Let us know. Meg, whose family is out there in Santa Rosa. Thank you all for sharing. I am so honored to hear about the good in your lives. If you want to share your best thing all week, you can do so at any time throughout the week. Just record yourself and send the file to samsanders at npr.org. All right, Mama, we made it. Selena, take us home. <laughs> I can't believe you guys don't know this. You know Selena. Right. Well, you know, okay, you knew. I was just nervous. Yes. Now, McKay, you did not know. <laughs> well, I know the song. I didn't know who sang it. Okay. Y'all, this weekend, promise me that you're going to watch the J-Lo Selena. I've seen no, it. I've seen it, and oh, I, I will rewatch it. The Purple Jumpsuit. I've seen it. I will rewatch they... it and then yes. listen to my Will Smith CD from, <laughs> from the Miami one. Yeah. just have, like, a whole experience. Have a whole yeah. 90s experience. All right. This week, the show was edited by Jeff Rogers and Steve Nelson. The big boss of this show, It's Been a Minute, is our vice president of programming at NPR. Her name is Anya Grunman. The show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. All right, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for Ashley Nicole Black from a little show called Full Frontal with Samantha B. Olivia, McKay, I'm buying you guys food right now. Thank you. Let's leave Thank this you. booth. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Talk soon. 